Welcome to Health Impressions, the show about authority, acquisition, and retention. I'm your co-host, Brian Cush, co-founder of Title Health Group, a digital marketing agency specializing in healthcare. I'm accompanied by Jay Parkinson, Chief Medical Officer of SANA, a health plan that delivers high-quality healthcare while keeping costs down. Our show focuses on the cross-sections of marketing, patient experience, and product development. We explore strategies for providing high-quality care, enhancing patient experience, and retention through cutting-edge technologies. We'll be speaking with like-minded industry leaders who will be sharing their learnings and spilling some secrets, too. Awesome. Uh, Welcome to the show, Reed. Uh, I can't be more excited about the three of us to talk. And uh, I think we just dive right in. I mean, before we started recording, uh, it sounds like we're going to get some insight to stuff that hasn't been published yet. Uh, I've always been a fan of the kind of State of the Union report you guys have been putting out, I think six years now, and you're about to publish a new one. Uh, I'd love to just jump in if there's anything that kind of jumped out to you. Yeah, would love to do it. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, thanks guys for having me. You know, the, the consumer patient trend survey is one of these things that has surfaced like interesting insights every year. But this one, not only are there some interesting insights, but there are things that I just did not expect. Just count, counterintuitive stuff to what my own experiences have been actually working in the space. So I'll drop a few like of the big bang stats that really got my attention when we first started seeing the data come back. You know, one of them, which I think is, is really crucial, we've been waiting for this for a long time, but this is the first year where when you look at all of the um, sort of the referral sources, that is people who said, I chose my provider based on what other doctors told me, based on what family and friends told me, based on what my benefits manager told me. Um, there's that bucket, sort of referrals. And then there's the bucket that says, I went online. I used Google, I used online websites, I did my own research. This is the first year that online research outpaced referrals um, by quite a bit. Almost 60% of people said online sources were their primary source and that even referrals from their doctor, friends, family, and benefits um, was, was less than half. Um, we've been watching this creep up year over year, but this is the first one that's actually fully flipped over, uh, which is which is just fascinating. I mean, it really speaks to the sort of Amazon effect, the idea that uh, the Internet is a better source of information than any given human uh, and that it's sort of the aggregate of humans. Uh, I know that jives, though. That, that must make sense for you guys. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's did you see that that was like a very linear growth or was this hockey stick from the previous year to this year that really bumped it above the majority? Yeah, no hockey stick this time. This was just like year over year, just the the grind of the improvement of the online experience. That's one of the meta themes. So there's some like kind of big bang stats and some meta themes that came out of it. One of those meta themes is just this, you know, year over year improvement of healthcare, especially marketers doing the real yeoman's labor of ensuring that people find the kinds of information they're looking for that lets them make good decisions. And that this is just one of those facets. The second half of that stat is that less than 2% of people People said that they don't do any online research. That's effectively no one. Yeah, I mean, we've been like evangelizing the concept of just like the retailization of healthcare for a long time, and it's it's not that it's new. It's just been slow to kind of become the mass adoption. Uh, and it's funny, it makes me think of I'm like already steering to a different conversation, but just even validate your research from a different standpoint is. The gentleman from Accenture we're going to talk to, this is the first year that kind of non-clinical reasons 
at the, I think it's Gen Z, actually outpaced like their loyalty. So what that meant was like they preferred ease of scheduling and after hour scheduling over whether the provider was in network or not. Like it's just that, that consumerism, retailization of healthcare, it just so continues to kind of grow. So not from the trend survey, but from uh, Press Ganey and looking at the PX surveys and survey flows over time, one of, the, one of the concepts that's really important to us is the idea of friction. And we're looking for these operational friction moments that act as key drivers on what the final patient experience rating is. And one of the things that we've discovered, and this is a, a data point that they developed over the course of about five or six years, is that the earlier in the patient journey they experience operational friction, the harder it is for the health system to recover and still get a good top box score on the survey itself. And the earliest point of friction you can achieve is like having a bad time on the doctor finder, having a bad time doing online scheduling, having a bad time doing your research and looking at listings that are wrong. And that really early digital front door stuff, even though it's, it's kind of like data management, hospitality kind of stuff, it's non-clinical. You still, even when you deliver great care, the patient goes, meh, it was an okay experience. Mm-hmm. So who are your like favorite clients? What are characteristics of clients that really care about this stuff? Because, you know, healthcare has always been a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit behind the times, I like to say about 20 years. And so it's, uh, you know, other, other industries have like obviously really cared about what consumers think, but healthcare hasn't so much. So what are the characteristics of clients that you found that, um, you know, why do they care? Because mm-hmm. healthcare traditionally hasn't. It's a really good question. And while I'm, while I'm not going to name names because we don't kiss and tell, I will say that it's really important um, as an institution to think about the role of your CXO. And this concept of this chief experience officer is a relatively new role. And it's this evolution of this blend of the marketing department and the classic patient experience which is effectively like market research almost, you know, the, the kinds of aggregate statistical work that PX departments do feels a lot like market research and, and that the CXO is responsible for both of those things. And so when you see that, you see someone who's interested in the full sweep. It's not just what happens in the encounter, not just what happens in the clinic or on the floor, it's what happens as they're making their decisions, what happens as they're t- doing their research. And the, the, The key for me in those environments is that it is not uncommon to walk into a health system and find two very different perspectives in the PX group and in the marketing group. The patient experience group is always like, we're just trying to make patient care better. You know, that's the most important thing for us. We need to improve clinical care so that patients have better experiences because we know when they have better experiences, they have better clinical outcomes. And then you go to the marketing department and some of them are pretty crass. It's like, dude, I got all these beds and I need to get bodies in there. And it's a re- it's like this total disconnect in, in, in how they're thinking about it. And really good institutions, both of those parties are thinking about both of those functions. You know, the, the, the CXO says no money, no mission. Like I need to bring people into the system. This is still a competitive environment, but I'm doing it because I will deliver the best care. I will deliver better care than the guy across the street, than the system across town. Um, and so I'm going to use everything at my disposal to try to create that. And it includes these more traditional marketing centric functions and they're, and they're technical. This is the other thing I think that's happening is like, I think that there's a lot of folks who think of the marketing department and they think about like an episode of Mad Men where you're like coming to pitch like some big fancy thing on a board. When in reality, like, Marketing is very technical and it's very digital. It's really data management and data centric. 
know, healthcare is still an inelastic good. I'm not trying to sell baked beans. You know, you, you, people need it. Like nobody wants, it's the hotel you don't want to go to. Like you, you, but you have to. And so it's like, no, it's just about being better at the data management, surfacing the right information to the right person at the right time, tracking and understanding that you're personalizing what they're expecting um, and really delivering them what they're expecting. That those, those components. So like people who have a centralized department, who have the, the no money, no mission sort of vibe and who recognize how technical the work is, those are, those are my favorites. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's also, <clears throat> to me, I, you know, I'm fascinated by just service design. And, you know, service design is typically, you know, um, thought of as people, props and processes, right? People, the care teams, props, meaning like the digital experiences, the, you know, the literal front door of a hospital and processes like how things get done, you know, and there's so much precedent out there for um, like online experiences and how to measure those but like healthcare has so much offline experiences that like are almost unmeasurable besides through what you guys are doing so you know it's uh it's it's a fascinating new world and i i don't hear the world the word service design thrown around too much in healthcare but it's like it's classic service that it needs to be and tracking all that IRL stuff is really, yeah. really hard. The The good news is um, we're very excited to announce a formal relationship with Epic. Um, yeah. So Epic's had their like little app orchard forever and they have always carved off like a little piece of their software experience where you can like fill in kind of whatever you want. But this is fundamentally not that. This is, this is fundamentally uh, their first like capital C collaboration they've ever had with another organization. And we're developing a wide bi-directional pipe between the Prescani human experience platform and the entire Epic suite. So including Cheers, their CRM. And the, the fundamental goal is to use what exists in there to identify more and more of those IRL moments that have been uncapturable to date. So things like you're in the emergency department and you're being handed into an inpatient setting. That's an amazing moment to try to do a little feedback and do a little outreach and capture a question or two to try to assess sort of what's happening in there. You know, you're being discharged from an inpatient setting into a home health setting. It's an amazing moment to do a little outreach and figure out what they're experiencing. You know, there's the classic stuff around like QR codes that are at the bedside and all, all this kind of stuff. But this this wide pipe between us and Epic, I think, is going to give us uh, way more moments of interest that we're technically capable of identifying, measuring, and making part of the of rich tapestry of what the patient journey had been or looked like. Because I agree with you, those those in real life moments are so crucial and they've been so hard to measure um, that it's really hard to get better at any of them. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, you see these things like in airport restrooms where it's like, you know, you get to choose like that little happy face, mild face, sad face. And like, that's all they know. Right. So mm -hmm. it's the same challenge, right? I mean, it's a service. So it's in healthcare. It's just like the service is far more emotional than the airport restroom. And dude, if you're not going to touch the thing in the airport restroom, I'm definitely not going to touch the thing in the hospital restroom. Like you're probably not going to get MRSA in the airport. It just, it's yeah, just yeah. a gross <laughs> the gross, gross idea. <laughs> I'd love to zoom in on. I love the the bifurcation where you're saying of consumer experience and marketing. Like, how do you think about bridging that? Because it is very common. Like when we come in on the marketing side, 
it's usually this focus on this bottom of the funnel, like all the money's in this transactional grab. Like you're saying, it's almost this unit economics, like fill the beds. And no one's thinking about kind of up the funnel, building the brand, which is a lot more in line with the consumer experience. So I can validate that there is a lot of that separation. And I have to assume you don't only work with your ideal clients. Like, how do you guys approach or think about even bridging that gap? You know, one of the things that we've been doing for a long time is talking about reputation as the as the bridge between big brand and transactional unit economic value. Um, because it's one of those things that makes sense to both of those parties. You know, you can you can sit down with a chief marketing officer at a health system who maybe isn't not in the weeds on the on the, the transactional costs of like how much do they spend on PPC versus how many people actually book the appointment. Um, but they understand that reputation is part of their big brand and it affects those underlying, you know, day to day, dollar to dollar efficacy around campaign work. Um and I think it's because it's like reputational stuff, reviews online is so easy for people to understand because everybody uses it for everything all the time. Um, and so that, that's been a huge focus for us for many years. At this point, um, we took a look at the underlying database and it is, it is now our substantial guess based on the number of providers we know exist in the country that we're the largest reputation provider in, uh, in healthcare. Um, we have more providers, locations, clinics, and health systems under management. Um, and one of the reasons we've been able to achieve that is that it's actually something that doesn't just matter to the CMO and like the director of paid SEM. It actually matters to the patient experience leader. It matters to the HR leader because doctors are doing their research before they're willing to come work for you. It's, it is one of those factors that everybody understands and has become universal in nature. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's funny. Most of our inbound inquiries are usually around reputation and social media because it's ubiquitous. Like everybody interacts with it. And that's like always our joke where we're just like, you're at the store and you're like looking up reviews on $12 socks and like trying to fight down to understand if they're the perfect sock or if I can get a dollar savings. Like, why would you not put as much effort into a health service brand reputation? hundred percent. There's a funny thing that happened. So this is one of these meta stories from the consumer patient trend survey this year that I think is, is kind of fascinating. And it was a total counterintuitive moment. So um, a few things that you would expect that I do think are interesting and worth sharing. One, um, at this point, 85% of consumers are, are reading online reviews. Uh, and we are seeing that 65% of consumers find reviews older than six months no longer relevant. So those numbers used to be like 80% and a year it used to be that like uh, eight month, 10 month old review, like that's still relevant. At this point, the majority of people are saying, no, it needs to be six months. And, and so then you take the sort of next stat, which is when asked to rank importance, um, almost a third of people say the most important thing about reviews is that you have them on more than one site. The idea that there's coverage, that like mm -hmm. you're not just focusing all your energy on Google or all your energy on health grades or energy on, on your own website. Like they're they're looking to see that you have reputation everywhere. They're hitting that Google page and they're clicking all the links. And so it needs to be six months or, or fresher, needs to be in, in more than one place. Um, at this point, the number of consumers who read more than six reviews is about 50%. Um, but that's down. It's down from previous years. So less people mm. are reading a lot of reviews. So they need to be everywhere and they need to be recent, but you don't need to have that many. It's like that part's not really that important anymore. Um, 
and then the the last sort of quick stat is that uh, when asked to rank credibility, 25% of consumers distrust non-healthcare sources online, including search engines, which is a pretty high percentage of people to distrust mm -hmm. the reviews they see on Google. The question was actually phrased as a trust question, but when we looked at the at the sort of full set of math, a quarter of people did not trust online search engines. They only trusted healthcare sources. They trusted places like HealthGrades. They trusted places like the hospital's website. But they, if you weren't a healthcare source, they were like, no, nah, that's great for pizza, but it's like not great for anything else. Um, and despite all of those stats, for the first time since we started doing this, the number one most important ranking factor when asked um, was the quality and completeness of a doctor's profile on their websites and directories. For the first time, it wasn't reviews. It was richness and accuracy of data, which kind of blew my mind. And we stared at it and we were like, I don't understand. I don't understand what this means. Like reviews was the number one thing five years in a row. This year, it's like data accuracy and completeness. And we started looking at the stats I just sort of rattled off in a row and tried to understand what the story might be. And our assertion is that so many institutions have been doing reputation work for so long that at this point, you can only lose by not doing it. You can't win just by participating. Everybody's got enough reviews, and so they need to be greater than six months old. Need to be younger than six months old. Everybody's got enough reviews, so they've got to be spread out everywhere. Otherwise, they don't they don't matter. Everybody's got enough reviews, and so in a world where everyone is doing reputation work, all of a sudden the thing that can differentiate you is having the data be accurate, having the data be rich, having them know more about the doctor, know that they're a shoulder surgeon and not a knee surgeon know that what they're credentialed for, like those kinds of things is our suspicion. It's fascinating to me. Reed, do you have any um, data on how many, what percent of people actually do reviews? I've always heard, you know, just this is totally different, but Amazon less than like 1% of purchasers leave reviews. And then I'm just like, okay, well, if a PCP has 1500 patients and 1% of their patients are reviewing, you know, you're looking at what, 15 reviews a year, basically. And it's just like, is that enough to be relevant, uh, interesting? Um, and also, you know, if you're, if you're a, a therapist, for example, and you see, you know, you have 40 patients, if that, at any given time, um, and you might only have 100 patients a year, um, one of them is going to review you. So like what's, what's going on with this sort of volume and, and of, you know, reviews and like, why do people choose to review? So when we look at conversion rates, when we do request reviews and like the review requesting space, not, and not, this isn't the patient experience service this is specifically for kind of consumer style reviews. We'll still see like a six to 8% click through when you're asking. You know, and so if you're not asking, that's how come tons of doctors have no reviews at all because nobody feels inclined just to go on health grades for fun and like write a review of the doctor they just saw. It's like it is it is a relatively unique perspective to have a person be like, I really want to share my experience about my dentist. I just like it's a weird thing to say to yourself. Most people don't want to do that. And so that's why I think there's this sort of proliferation of services, because when asked, they'll participate. But left to their own devices, they just they just don't really care. One of the questions we so we didn't ask that question. One of the questions we did ask was about social media posts 
specifically looking at Instagram and, and, and Facebook. Next year we're going to talk about TikTok, but this year was Instagram and Facebook. And 43.5% uh, of consumers state they would post about their healthcare experiences on social media like Facebook and Instagram. Um, so that's almost half. Almost half of people are like willing to talk about it on Facebook, which totally was mind-blowing for me as a not particularly social media guy. It was like, really? Seems like a weird thing to spend your time on Facebook talking about. Um, and the corollary stat that I also think is really interesting is um, the social media site's trust was lowest, where only 6.2% of people say that they can rely on information you get in those social media sites. So like half of people are willing to post it, but nobody's really listening, which I think is kind of like social media in a microcosm. Yeah, it's funny. That's wrapped into the Accenture data too, is that it's, not even that people want your provider to be active on social, but they want it as a communication channel. Like that was their, their impetus of uh, prioritizing over whether the provider was in network was going like we, we, if, if there's an ease of communication and one of the subcategories was social. Um, it, it's funny. One of the things that rings out to me that everything you rattled through is like, it's the like almighty tipping point of the retailization of healthcare. And like, I'm, I'm going to like, come from left field and that's my, my brother's a chef and I've talked a lot in that community and the two things they say about people's loyalty within the hospitality and food space is consistency and recency. And that's what I hear about with the reviews is like, you have to stay recent and relevant and you have to stay consistent in what you deliver. Like really simple, basic concepts in, in any consumer driven experience. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really curious to understand how do you, we have a lot of data that show, and I'm, re, I'm really intrigued on how you saw the kind of distrust of Google, but the trust of provider sites is that Google and specifically Google My Business is kind of that last click attribution in our world. There's a ton of action through that channel, but it's really interesting now to pair your data to go, well, the, the online journey is complex and multi-touch that we may not have this kind of direct correlation of seeing the journey from those previous uh, directories. Like how, do you, how do you begin to answer that? Or do you have data to answer that that shows that kind of complex online journey? Yeah, it's, it's been it's been a hard thing to achieve. You know, we have a, a lot of relationships in the sort of healthcare directory space, and we do have pixels there that tell us unique visitors. We have pixels that, that do tell us how many people take action. But, you know, they say in healthcare, a good idea is a misdemeanor and a great idea is a felony. And it's like never more like that than online tracking and privacy work. So it's really hard for us to know what does the journey actually look like? What did people click on? How did they get there? And obviously, I love Google My Business or business profile or whatever they decide to call it next week and it's like attributing well 100 percent of patients parked in the parking lot the parking lot must be the most important place for us to market ourselves it's like well no they were in the parking lot because they're about to walk in the building it's i think that it's easy to misconstrue the importance of of that particular page um, especially because in every other sector i use Google my business as the primary decision maker for choosing restaurants, um, for choosing hotels that I go to, like for so many things. And every that's kind of everybody's experience, except it's not my primary place when I choose my healthcare. It's just the last place I end up. You know, you, you it's just one source. And so, you know, if I get a bad piece of pizza because I didn't make a great decision, like that's okay. 
if I choose a bad oncologist because I just went and looked on Google and looked at their reviews. Like that's kind of tragic. So it's to me, it really feels like that kind of parking lot example. Yeah, that's a perfect analogy. And it, it really is the, I think the unspoken thing and very much deeply in our field is that is just like everyone puts this value on it's it's all it's last click whether it's literal last click from like a ppc sense or last click in the user journey from oh they took action here but when we uncover a lot of that like when we do from a ppc standpoint we actually find the converting keywords are brand and it's like well where do you think that person would have went anyway if you didn't spend that dollar and and it's always like it's that adage of like everyone's focused on this last transaction in the search funnel and like healthcare is so complex in the online journey. And we're always proponents of that is like the internet's just like your 24 seven sales agent. Like you're losing patients or consumers that you don't even physically interact with. And it's like such a counter thought in our world that I don't get like why people live so much. And it's, I guess it's just easy that you don't have to push against and kind of understand to your point, this very complex journey and just focus on the last click or last action. Drunk, drunk guy looking for his keys under the streetlight. You can't see anything else. So that's where you end up looking. You know, it's like, it, it, it's just what you can see. You made a reference before we started recording about, I think the measuring stick got closer of like perceived experience with actual experience. There was a data point somewhere in there that was really interesting. Yeah. So the, the actual question was, um, So you were the last time you received healthcare and read reviews before you went. Um, how accurate were the reviews to your experience of that care? And eighty four point five percent of people said highly accurate. And so I guess that we try to figure out what what that means. And and so it seems like when you read your online reviews and you go and have that experience, you have the experience that you were expecting based on the reviews that you read. And we see this as a really positive trend um, because if you didn't have the way that works in our estimation is that you have enough reviews out there. If you have enough reviews out there and people are reading four or five, six of them um, all of a sudden, like people understand the average of what they're going to expect when they walk in the door and that there's a certain, um, level of accuracy to the scale that people are getting and that people are getting better at writing reviews. So those are sort of our sort of blend of assumptions that came out of that, that like people are getting the healthcare expecting based on what they read online before they walk in the door. Um, and, you know, we talked about this earlier, but I, I do think there's a halo effect that occurs in there. Um, one of the reasons I think there's a halo effect is we recently wrapped a case study with a medical malpractice firm and a law firm that's attached to them where we took our clients who are using reputation and bumped them up against claims flow, med mal claims flow. And one of the things we discovered is that institutions who use reputation management solutions have a lower uh, ameliorated risk profile in a medical malpractice situation. And one of the reasons we think that is because uh, law firms have started introducing reviews in discovery during medical malpractice cases. And it's like, oh, if you if you do a good job creating a positive online presence, other people will see it and be less likely to sue you. They'll think, oh, I just had a one-off bad experience. Um, these guys are normally great. Look at all these five-star reviews. 
Uh, whereas if you don't actively participate and you just wait for angry people to go leave reviews online. And one of the things we found, because we're the patient experience company and the reputation company, is that PX, which has always been solicited, we were always asking for PX feedback, that tracks between a star and a star and a half higher than online reputation when it isn't managed. So asking gets you happier people. If you don't ask, you just wait for people to go online. You're going to get some percentage of people who are like, oh, they delivered my baby or they saved grandpa. And then you're going to all these people that are like, I had a terrible billing experience and I waited in the waiting room forever. And so if you just wait for people, you're going to bias negative. And so actively managing reputation, making sure there's enough feedback out there actually ameliorates your medical malpractice risk to the point where the largest med mail in New York state is now giving clients a 10% discount for using the Prescani reputation solution. Totally wild. And not, not <laughs> where I expected the, the thing to go, but it, it ameliorates your risk profile. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what a simple thought. Like if you actively think about your consumer's experience, it's directly courted to giving a shit. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, that's crazy. And then you have the con- kind of quantitative data that's now a, a dollar savings underneath it from it was a riskful analysis, right? And that really, they're yeah. just going like, you're now in the in club because we feel like you actually care about your patients. Exactly right. Exactly right. And what, what's funny is, you know, we're, we're now working on a series of like other things to layer into that relationship. And the way, the direction we're going, it feels sort of opposite, right? So Presgany is like solutions for marketers, solutions for patient experience, solutions for CHROs and like people teams and solutions for clinical and safety. And so we started on the marketing side, uh, attracting and approaching this like med mal problem, but we also are the way organizations actually deliver safer care. We have a thing called the high reliability protocol that gets used in institutions to prevent them from like leaving sponges in you during surgery and like actually spraying down the room with appropriate disinfectant, these sort of like checklist, make sure you deliver safe care things. So that's the next direction we're going with our med mal relationships is like, okay, institutions that use us for safety culture are definitely safer, um, especially when you consider that institutions that use us for reputation are a better risk. You got to think safety culture is making an even bigger impact. So that's that's coming next. You play like a perspective, but maybe there's data underneath this too. When you throw in like virtual care delivery models or purely virtual care platforms, is like how does that change the conversation? Like do things skew in a different direction? It's fascinating. So far, we still don't have a ton of um, virtual specific reviews. We we are, you know, we're one of the primary patient experience uh, organizations who measure the you know PX following a telemedicine visit. Um, and so it's an interesting question to see how that how it differs. But most of the time, organizations don't use those to create reviews. So when you look at reviews, it's like you don't know whether they were virtual or whether they were in person. Mm. It's interesting because most virtual visits are kind of like <clears throat> video visits with randos, right? And so you don't have like a, you don't have like this emotional connection. You just like, oh yeah, I got my UTI treatment. Thank you very much. Bye. And like, so there's probably not that much value in like reviewing an individual doc because you never, you don't get a choice for the most part. Um, and, but at the same time, you know, the brand of a telehealth, you know, vendor is uh is 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 important so they probably want to you know have great reviews for that consumer experience but not for the actual doctor's care 
yeah, they're like obsessed with the ratings of the app in the app store. They're not yeah. obsessed with the ratings of the doctor that they yeah. are contracted with. You know, we, yeah. um, one of the questions we put in the consumer trend survey, and I don't have it in the little deck I'm looking at on the side here, so I'm not going to hit this one exactly. But we asked, um, if you knew the outcomes were going to be the same, what care setting would you prefer? And the three options we put in were in-office visit, uh, urgent care visit, or telemedicine visit. And the in-office visit, in-office visit was double. People still virtual. would rather go in, yeah, double, double virtual, double urgent care. Yeah. And it was funny yeah. to me because I was like, those other two are so much more convenient. If I knew the outcome was the same, I wouldn't rather do it from my house. Like, what? A, what? A, am I weird? It seems like the right way to do it. But that is that is just not the way people feel about their healthcare right now. Like they do the telemedicine either when they have to or in very particular situations. But people still want to go and like sit down with the doc. Is that blended from like a demographics perspective, or do you have a do you have generations underneath that? That was that's the full blended stat. I have to go back yeah. and dig up and see if there's a generational gap there. I I, I think your assertion is likely that it is different yeah. across different age demos, but um, it was double. It was like so stark. It really struck out to me. I mean, I have a theory about that. If you want to hear it, well, I would love to hear. It. <laughs> and and no promises. I'm not going to take what you tell me and start saying it to other people. But I will quote you. Yeah, well, and you. create a fancy yeah, analogy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, no, most most telehealth visits, I'd say 99% of them are like, you know, rando video visit um, transactions, right, for really simple things. And so, you know, um, because they're designed in a way that like, they're not very powerful, they don't have a lot of scope. Most people have had a probably not a great experience because it's like, oh, it was just, it fell outside of the 30 things that traditional rando video visits can solve. So... I just, I just need to be seen in person. But if you had like a service that owned the outcome over time and you can engage with over time rather than just like transactional stranger conversations, um, I think people would, uh, would choose. So to me, it's a design of the telehealth uh, experience versus like the mode of communication. Is there anybody who's doing that like really well right now where you like, always get the same doctor on your telemedicine visit. Now your primary care is predominantly through tele through telehealth yeah. and you actually develop a relationship and it gets out of the 20 or 30 things that are the standards. I mean, that's what Sherpa did. So that was my company started back in 2012, uh, crossover mm -hmm. health. Uh, they have that, um, the crossover acquired Sherpa. So now they have that type of, uh, experience and, uh, stay tuned, uh, for more to come. Uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, that's that to me is what the problem with telehealth is. And so you need to have that sort of just think of it. It's almost like Marcus Welby, but just online. It's not some yeah. rando just giving you a prescription, you know. So, yeah. And health systems often will like buy their like buy access to a telemedicine platform and yeah. then use it for you to like see your doctor, but in a telehealth yeah. environment. But I, I don't see them marketing it that hard. It doesn't seem like it's a driving factor for the way they're trying to interact. You can just get paid more for bringing people into the office. So, you know, Oh, it's a and billing that, problem. Oh. Yeah. It's a billing <laughs> problem. Plus it's like a workflow problem. Like doctors are like, uh, they're just, their schedules are full. So like, why do I want to, you know, inject a few of these sort of video transactions where I get paid like a third uh, into my day, you know? So makes sense. To yeah. Me. It's a business problem, business model problem. Follow the dollars, right? Always.
Yeah, there's a lot of companies tackling it, but I don't know if it like jumps out. I can't say like objectively doing it well. I mean, the conference we were just at, I mean, it's, there's a lot of this kind of like mixed model. Like how do you pick a particular specialty, whether it's orthopedics or like pain, they traditionally you would interact with three or four providers and there's a lot of digital technologies going, well, let's bring those three or four providers together to you with you synchronously to kind of provide a different experience. But I don't know how consistent it's the same provider. To me, they're all still leading, like just separating brand and provider drastically. Uh, and that, that to me, like we have a lot of interesting data underneath that. I'm just like, where in the, the like, specialty of care does the brand versus the provider become important? And it's, it skews differently as you think primary care, something as simple as annual exam, there's less kind of reliant on the brands or the provider's reputation versus a brand. And then obviously dwindles over time and more specialized the care, but there's no like perfect break point to know when. Um, I'd be curious, I don't know if you have a perspective on that read or even data underneath that of like the brand versus provider balance. The brand versus provider balance has kind of always been a fascinating question, uh, especially as we worked with um, what we think of as like single specialty, multi-location, mostly private equity backed mid-market organizations, big dermatology, big dental, big cancer, these kind of these kind of orgs. And for them, it's like all about the big brand. You know, in dental especially, you know, you work with those big players and they're trying to like widgetize the doctor. They're not, they're not trying to invest in that human um, at all. And so they've always made the argument, they're like, oh, no, the big brand is the only thing that matters. But every time we study it, we discover that the referral travels at the provider level. That's actually like who, that, that's who somebody tells you to go see. You know, the, the building is not operating on you. It's like, it's the, it's the person that's operating on you. And so the, the discussion online, when you do social listening, when you read the reviews themselves, there's even when they're, even when the, the big brand is trying to orient the reviews around the big brand, so much of the content is actually still about the doctor that it is, it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing. Um, and we just tell people you need to do both. You can't forget about the big brand. If you're very provider centric, like most, you know, academic medical centers are like, you need to think about your big brand. It's really important. Um, but you also can't forget about your doctor the way a big branded DSO may think about their, their dentists. And so it, it really is this thing that you sort of need to do in balance and in concert uh, because it's just, it's, you, you don't know who's going to see what and when, but you do know that people are doing a ton of research and they're going to, they're going to find either one or both. Yeah. We always saw that as an opportunity loss. I mean, our, our data is not as large, like quantitatively viewed guys, but we had some interesting data sets under the Google business profile of then the subcategorization of brand versus provider listing that we saw a four to one ratio from brand to provider where the brand drove more inquiry, but that's still a 25% nut. I mean, that's a huge subsection that if you're not representing what we kind of called this like pyramid of brand, you're missing out on a lot if you don't see that your provider is also a sub brand of your business. And that was always like our argument back of how to make sure they at least had a seat at the table. And I think that I could almost push back on our own data that I think that ratio will become even closer the more we more data set we get underneath it. But yeah, I mean, that's always a it's, a, it's an opportunity loss section that we always find and uncover that almost everyone thinks that way. And it's in part, it's because it's, um, it's a much bigger scale data problem. Like it's, it's one thing to have enough reviews about your big brand 
but it's another thing to have enough reviews about your 1300 providers. Just, it's just, it's harder to achieve. You just need a lot more content. It exists in a lot more places. It just tends to be more expensive, more effort filled. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it, it, it's easy for an institution to say like, Oh, I got my big brand and my rooftops covered. It's like, yeah, but what about what people are actually using to do their research? And they'll often, it'll come down to price. It'll come down to time and bandwidth. Another reason why we love the, you know, institutions that are already doing patient experience surveying. You know, they're all, they're already, and they've been doing it for 30 years. Like they're already capturing at the provider level reactions from patients post encounter. Um, and we can just take them and clean them for PHI and put them on your own website through transparency, put them around the web through review publishing. Like let's, let's take advantage of the fact that there's already content at the provider level that you can figure out how to distribute and do it in a way that's scalable, do it in a way that isn't quite so onerous as like trying to get 1300 providers to participate in a thing or get those 1300 providers, thousands of patients to do things individually when you're already having them do something. They're already taking these surveys, mm. just use the content and make hay from it. I'm, I'm super curious to hear like what's your, if it's straight up predictions or forecasts for where this, this industry is going. I mean, in the pre-conversation, you mentioned you guys are going to have questions around TikTok and your like your future mm -hmm. conversations. Uh, I mean, you're talking about some really interesting like data silos that you're breaking down and connecting around just like full digital and physical episode of care. Like, where what things do you see starting to get uncovered in the future as as these kind of aggregate data systems get connected? And I want this is like a chat GPT, but I want you to, to deliver it in like a 1900 Victorian style analogy. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm, I'll get to the analogy at the end if I can come up with a good one. But I, but I. So there's a there's a few things that I think are like finally on the cusp. You know, one is we talked about earlier with the partnership with Epic. It allows us to collaborate with Epic. Allows us to have this big open pipe to capture more data and actually start to get a clearer customer journey, a clearer patient journey through that golden thread. Um, that's that's new. That's unique. We've been working on these isolated moments of time where we learn something from a patient, but being able to string them all together, um, that I think opens up a whole universe. The the second side, and you 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 said you said the words. I think large language models are actually going to fundamentally change analysis because today, you know, we spend a lot of time building the reporting, and people who make decisions don't get a lot of time to read that reporting and understand it. But we've done some experimentation. We're, we're launching stuff, including the ChatGPT API, every quarter of the year. And one of the ones I'm most excited about is we did some experiments where we took, I think it was 10,000 pieces of patient feedback for a large health system. And we fed it to ChatGPT and said, give me a 200-word synopsis. You know, so they yeah. just gave us a 200 words on the last month of feedback. It did it in like eight seconds. Um, we then went back and, and used our own, uh, natural language processing. Cause we have this thing called narrative DX. It has like six federal patents. It's like the patient experience NLP. And so we looked at the way it bucketed stuff in comparison with the way ChatGPT interpreted it. And then we went back and we went under the hood even deeper and actually started doing some reading. We actually did some sort of smell testing on it. And that ChatGPT 200 word summary, pretty good. Pretty good. It's definitely good enough for a CEO to read once a month who has almost certainly never looked at their patient experience metrics. And, and the idea that we can summarize and synthesize that so that you can actually see it and read it and understand it. I was at a, I was at a bar 
in Atlanta and randomly someone saw I was, I was wearing my, I was traveling for work. So I had my like pullover on with a little logo and a doctor see me and be like, we hate press gaining. And I was like, Ooh, it hurts my feelings. <laughs> like, let's talk about why, you know, normally, and normally providers, when they say that they're like, well, you know, you made, you guys made my top box score part of my compensation. So you guys are the reason I'm not getting all my money. I was expecting them to say that. That's not even what they said. And by the way, we don't do that. That's your institution that does that. Like, I don't pay you. What are you even talking about? <laughs> anyway, so so then she was like, you know, I do these surveys every year and tell people what's tell my leadership what's wrong in the org and like nothing ever changes. I keep doing this press gaining survey and nothing ever changes. And it's like, well, I'm just a survey instrument. Like I can't tell your leadership what to do unless they're buying a consulting package from us. Like I can just show them what we think is happening and they need to make decisions. And I think that chat GPT and sort of more modern reporting structures actually will surface the voices of those that are hard to hear to the people who need to hear them to try to make better decisions, try to create institutions that we want to go to as patients or work at as clinicians. And that there's this opportunity to surface what has been data um, into something that is more like signal and will be meaningful mm -hmm. for folks. My synopsis of that is you should wear your mushroom hunting association sweater and then yeah. the rest instead. Truly people, people do not understand. People always want to shoot the messenger. It's like, it, it's not, I'm, just, I'm literally just a software platform. I, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. But hopefully you butter a beer so, you know, you can make yes, up for all 100%. the you know, one, yeah. 100%. But that wasn't even, that wasn't even her problem. She was just, they're, yeah, yeah. they're only a client that uses workforce. They don't even use us for patient experience. Oh, she was geez. just like, I do keep doing these surveys and work's not getting better. Yeah. It's like, yeah. your leadership needs to read the reporting. You'll never wish swag out in public again, will you? Yeah. I, I, I feel very conflicted about wearing my swag when I go to the doctor's office. I feel very conflicted <laughs> about writing where I work on those intake forms um, because yeah. the, the, the way people react is shocking. People do not understand Prescani at all. It is, it is amazing. And, uh, and one of the things that has been kind of fascinating about going from being like a nimble, little small, kind of scrappy startup um, to being inside this giant mothership is that... Uh, there's all these assumptions about who we are and what we're like and what we've built and why we're building it that are so wildly wrong. People still see us like a 40 year old consultancy when in reality, we're one of the largest software platforms in healthcare and more engineering than most orgs. And it's, it's just not the way we're being perceived. We don't look like a startup to people, but we act like a startup and it's just about getting the, getting through to people. Yeah. Did you ever think about having doctors review press Ganey? Woof, that's a really interesting idea. <laughs> how, where, how do you how do you recommend we do it? Where do we where do we ask? <laughs> I don't know. You guys are the experts on that. I was just you know, hey, it's uh, it sounds like an, it would be an interesting study. I would think. Yeah. You sure. know, to figure and just out see what like people what, say. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, what's yeah. the qualitative side? Because like, yeah. uh, like what what would people write about us? I think it would be. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be hard to hear, but elucidating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I didn't have the most positive view of Prescani, but them hiring you, at least I would say like whole integer bumped up their reputation. So I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll fill, I'll fill that out in the form. Even though I I'm was not the, the doctor I on this the, call. <laughs> I was the first person at Prescani to have the word partnerships in their title. That's what our, that's what the organization was like for so <laughs> long, just real sharp elbowed, difficult to deal with. Um, but the whole, the whole place has changed. 
Um, this guy, Darren Dworkin, is now our president and COO. He was the, the CIO at Cedar sinai in LA and ran their venture group for like 20 years. One of the smartest dudes I've ever met. And he has like just transformed the organization into a software company in, in two years uh, through really skillful hiring and, and really like adroit movement inside the org to really orient ourselves around um, being a software company to really deliver significant value. And we didn't give anything up. We still have all our consultancies. We still have access to all the data we always had. We still have all the scientific rigor, but now I've got like hundreds of full stack engineers working on projects. And it's, um, I work at the biggest startup in the world. That's what I, that's what I tell people. Well, thank you, Reed. That was, uh, that was awesome. Super insightful. Uh, you know, I'm always just really curious about like the big brand versus the Dr. Cogs in the machine and like how those sort of interplay and what people are actually looking for. And, um, yeah. So, uh, especially in the digital world, you know, um, because again, like those, those docs are nameless, faceless docs, just handing out prescriptions and, you know, it's, uh, that's, uh, that probably needs to change and, and have more you know, say and who you can see online. So I'm, I'm eager to see that uh, come online and, in the future. And I think that it would be good for the workforce too, for the doctor, yeah. for the nurse, for, for that. Sure. Who wants to be a nameless face on the other yeah. side of a telemedicine platform? Like that's not why you went to medical school. And, and I think the dehumanization of the workforce, you see it across every statistic. Workforce well-being is, is the lowest it's been since we started measuring it 15 years ago. Like, People do not want to be in medicine. And, and I think that that um, marketing has an opportunity to, to step in and like elevate the role of the clinician um, in a way that not only supports what we know patients are actually looking for, but supports the clinicians that are working inside these orgs. You know, it's, it's really, um, it's a, we're, we are at the precipice of a pretty tragic situation where there are like not enough primary care physicians. There's not enough advanced practice nurses. Um, we have plenty of orthopedic surgeons, you know, and, and how do you address a health system, a national health system that, that is working towards inequity and not the other way. Um, if we, if we don't all focus and, and figure out ways to make it sort of, uh, change the dynamics, the trajectory is not great. And, uh, and I think there are, there are moments that we can jumpstart it. Maybe one, if you don't mind uh, me jumping on a soapbox quickly, I've become obsessed with the profession of nursing. The profession of nursing I've, I've come to realize is this unbelievably important part of how you actually experience care, both from the patient experience surveys, most of the positive, most of the most positive things are about your experience with the nurse, um, as well as your clinical outcomes. Teams where uh, nurses say, I f feel enabled to solve problems, um, those institutions are safer, those institutions work better, um, and it puts us in these environments where uh, you need to create that. You need to create that if you're going to have like safe, effective care. And on the marketing side, we've been saying the doctor, the doctor, the doctor, the doctor. It's the doctor's reviews. It's, it's the, the doctor's PX scores. Um, but in many ways, the health system relies on the nurse. And one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how we can elevate the profession of nursing by educating the population about the importance of nursing. Can we in marketing start focusing on leapfrog scores and magnet certification? Can we start creating like NDNQIs as national quality indicators database? 
could we get people like HealthGrades and Google and Vitals to start promoting NDNQI clinical outcomes measures as a part of what they use to, to surface care? Like, yeah, maybe your surgeons are great, but if you have the place where I'm most likely to get a compression injury because your nursing staff is disengaged, like, I don't want to send my loved ones there. And the data is out there, but it's just not part of our marketing stack. And so I think we as marketers have this opportunity to hone in on both the profession of nursing and the benefits of the clinical outcomes to create an educated populace who can make decisions based on that. And I think it'll flip the dynamic inside the health system where if people are making their choices based on the quality of the nursing in the facilities. All of a sudden you can pay more for nurses because it starts to make sense, starts to follow the dollars. And it becomes part of your brand and your brand focus to elevate those folks that are doing great work. That if I if I had a dream about marketing's connection to the rest of healthcare, it would be that. Well, you know, it's classic Toyota Lean concepts, right? It's like the people closest to the process know the problems of the process versus like upper management trying to predict what's wrong with our manufacturing line. You know, yeah. So I mean, that was one of the genius things that that Toyota came up with, right? Um, but it also goes back to how like what are you actually reviewing? You know, are you, there's so many different roles whenever you step into a hospital that like to elevate the doctor as the single most important role that should be reviewed is, is, you know, one one hundredth of the actual story, but that's where we are. Very exciting. For now, for now, for now. Yes. We're banking on you to figure it out, Reed. I was going to say, I think that's a good soapbox to end on. So we uh, really appreciate the time, Reed. Uh, it's been an amazing and formative conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. Really, really fun. Looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Health Impressions, Authority, Acquisition, Retention. We hope you found the conversation insightful and thought-provoking. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review. Your feedback will only help us improve the show. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can connect with us on social media, or you can send us an email at media at titlehealthgroup.com. T-I-D-A-L healthgroup.com. Until next time, keep exploring, keep learning, and keep pushing the boundaries of your knowledge. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again soon.